So just so everybody knows and everybody is on the same page, we've got two different sets of notes tonight, and I'm not 100% sure that we will get through both of them, but we'll try our best to listen fast. And so rather than breaking it up section by section and then asking if y'all have any questions the way that Nathan normally does, what we're going to do is we're going to break it up by topic. And so I'll cover an entire topic. So tonight we're covering creation and providence. And so I will cover all of creation and then, well, that's a lot to cover, but I will try as best I can to cover the topic of creation and then ask at the end if y'all have any questions about things that I will probably defer to Nathan because these are his notes. Um, and then we'll cover the topic of providence. Does that make sense? Okay, awesome. Well, let's go ahead and open up with a word of prayer, and then we'll go ahead and dive into our topic tonight. Holy Father, you are good. Holy Son, you are good. Holy Spirit, you are good. Lord, tonight we want to acknowledge that you are holy, that you are triune, and that you are good. So as we seek to honor you, worship you, through the study of your word, and through the study of these topics, we pray that the meditations of our heart would be a pleasing offering in your sight. That we would remember that we are not just here to gain more head knowledge, but that that head knowledge might lead us to worship you more. So help us tonight, Lord. Um, help us to understand your word rightly and then to be able to apply it rightly to our lives. Be with us now during this time, and we pray that your work would be done in this place. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, as is typical for us, let's go ahead and read this introduction together. The Equip Institute exists to equip members of Taylor's First Baptist Church to think rightly about God and His Word for the sake of living rightly before God in His world. So that's why we're here. We say it every single week, but we don't grow tired of saying it every single week because it's true. It's why we're here, right? So we want to be able to look at God's Word rightly so that we can live in God's world rightly. And so tonight we're going to be covering the topic of creation and the topic of providence, God willing. That was, I guess, an appropriate turn of phrase, but, you know, so we will do these things. Uh, last week, we looked at the attributes of God, and there is actually going to be a lot of God's attributes that we see repeated here in these topics, because it's really an application of God's attributes, His omniscience, His omnipotence, His um, holiness, all of these things influence the way that we think about creation and that we think about providence. So we're going to be covering those today. So this session is going to focus on the doctrine of God's work in creating and in creation itself. And while there are many other topics that we could also discuss related to this, um, it makes the most sense for us to dedicate this week to the doctrine of creation since there is so much debate, discussion, and confusion in our culture, right? Um, and even in our churches concerning the topic of God's creation. So what is the big idea? And that question kind of naturally lends itself to, well, how did we, how did we get here, right? This is one of the most foundational questions that all people at some point ask 
in their lives? How did we get here? And there are several different views that have been articulated throughout recorded human history. The Judeo-Christian tradition affirms that the only true God, Yahweh, created the universe and all creatures through the instrumentation of his spoken word. Christians, of course, understand this in a specifically and primarily Trinitarian way. There's one scholar who said that the Christian doctrine of creation is the free act of the triune God to create the entire universe from nothing, as well as every creature for his own purposes and glory. The idea that the triune God created the world from nothing is called the ex nihilo view of creation. You guys say that with me one time. Ex nihilo, right? And that comes from this Latin phrase that means from nothing. So in other words, God is not merely a craftsman who shaped creation into its present form. He created all the matter, molecules, and materials in the universe. This act of creation even includes the creation of time. One scholar says that time did not always exist. The world was created with time. Space and time came into creation or came into being only with creation, not prior to it. This is important for the way that we understand God because like we talked about last week in God's attributes, right? He is outside of time. That means that he is not bound within time. He's not bound to the past, present, or future. Time was a part of his creation whenever he created everything. Does that make sense? Okay, awesome. So let's look at what the scriptures say. The most comprehensive account that we have of creation is found in the opening verses of the Bible. Makes sense, because it is literally in the beginning. We want to know what happens in the beginning? Well, Genesis 1-1 through 2-4 tells us at length what happens. So it tells us the who and the how of creation. The who, that is God, created the entire universe. How? Through the instrumentation of his word. God's spirit was present at creation. The created order was declared to be good. And so you're going to see a lot of scripture references in your notes, and I will refer to maybe one or two of those. But I would strongly encourage that during your time, whenever you are at home looking over these notes, to read them all just to kind of get a really full picture of what God's word has to say about God's creation. So Genesis 1, 1 through 3, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and the waters were over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, and God said, Let there be light, and there was light. Or consider Genesis 1, 31. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. So other passages throughout the Old Testament confirm the Genesis account, that God is the creator, that he create, created by means of his word, and his spirit is involved in the process of creation. We see in Psalm 104, it says, Look all, the, These all look to you who give them their food in due season. When you gave it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are filled with good things. When you hide your face, they are dismayed. When you take away their breath, they die and return to their dust. When you send forth your spirit, they are created, and you renew the face of the ground. So the Old Testament is also clear that God created all things for his glory, especially humans who were created in his image and whom he specially blessed. 
If we look at Isaiah 43, 6 and 7, it says, I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. So the Old Testament understanding of creation is also affirmed again in the New Testament. We can see at the very end of Scripture, Revelation 4.11, it says, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. And the New Testament adds a new twist on the doctrine of creation, and that is that the Son played a role in the creation of the cosmos. It says in Colossians 1, 15 and 16, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by Him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, invisible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. Right? And then it says in Hebrews 1, 1 and 2, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. And that it kind of wraps up what we see a lot of, I mean, there are so many more verses we could refer to, but there's like so much that God says about his creation in his word. And so it's important not only for us to see how we are supposed to interpret these verses, but we're also supposed to put that in the context of history, right? What has the church believed throughout so many years? And as you guys can guess, on topics like creation and providence, the church has never once debated it, and it's been so like smooth sailing and everything, and that's exactly what we're going to do here tonight, right? Everybody's going to be in agreement, and everybody's going to be satisfied with all the answers, and everything's going to be like so smooth. It's going to be great. Yeah, probably not. But so he said, <clears throat> um, so church, the church throughout the years has said a number of different things, and there's been a lot of debate, a whole lot of debate. So before 1700, Christians were universally affirmed. Christians almost universally affirmed the doctrine of creation. In the patristic era, that's the era of the church fathers, that's where that word patristic comes from. In the patristic era, many heretical Christian Gnostics, you see this up on the board, it comes from this Greek word gnosis, which means knowledge. They believe that there was this hidden knowledge that you could learn from Scripture, that Scripture was not God's truth, but you could dig deeper, you know, or maybe even have like a hidden book somewhere else that was actually God's truth. And so that's what these people believed. And what they believed concerning creation was that they believed that Jesus himself was actually a lesser semi-divine being and that he created the entire world. So God did not create the world. Jesus created the world. We would agree that Jesus created the world, right? But whenever they say the name Jesus, they're talking about somebody totally different than what the Bible says about Jesus because the Bible says that Jesus was God, right? And so these Gnostics believed in a lesser deity creating the world. They viewed this act of creation as a bad thing because they exalted the spiritual over the material. And in the medieval era, a few scholastic theologians contemplated the idea of an, entire, of an eternal universe, 
But the overwhelming majority of professing Christians in the pre-modern era agreed with the biblical view. This agreement was reflected in the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed, both of which affirm unequivocally that God is the maker of heaven and earth. I'm going to give you guys some homework tonight. And that homework is to go ahead and look up, maybe Google it, or maybe if somebody has like a good website they would recommend, to look up the Apostles' Creed. Look up the Nicene Creed. See what they actually say about God and about his creation. I'm promising you that you will be blessed. So the only real debate concerning whether the days of Genesis were literal 24-hour periods or represented longer spans of time and um, <clears throat> was whether or not the, the days represented those 24-hour periods or longer spans of time. And Christians could be found in both camps prior to the Reformation, though a majority held to the literal seven-day creation. In the modern era, skeptical scientists and philosophers tried to find naturalistic or materialistic explanations for the world's creation, such as Darwin's evolutionary theory and process theology. So you'll see that those are actually up on the board right here. Um, I think everybody is pretty familiar with evolutionary theory. Does, is, you, know, you guys know what we're talking about whenever we're talking about the theory of evolution? All right. But process theology might sound a little bit new to somebody. And so process theology states that God created the world as an extension of his own being. So he has tied himself so closely to creation that as creation evolves, God evolves alongside it. And so in this view, process theology view, which is the view that's held by many liberal theologians, um, they believe that God is evolving alongside his world. Does that make sense? And so obviously we don't believe that. But <laughs> it's, it's worth knowing what people throughout church history have kind of debated and thought through. So while evolution became a hotly contested issue among Christians, most evangelical theologians rejected Darwinism, rejected evolutionary theory completely, um, as unacceptable because the Bible affirms that Yahweh created the world through his spoken word for his glory. These ideas are incompatible. I, I know it says in the notes that these ideas seem incompatible with natural selection, but I'm just going to tell you they are incompatible with natural selection. So um, <clears throat> there were many people who we call theistic evolutionists who have tried to reconcile evolutionary theory with the Genesis account. So they will say that, yes, God created the world, but he also created the process of evolution. So you kind of see like the weird middle ground there maybe. But, I mean, ultimately we find that this just kind of, it doesn't really work. It, once you think about it more, it just it, there, there isn't really a middle ground that we can firmly stand on, especially considering what Scripture has to say. So, though the old earth and young earth debate has grown in popularity amongst evangelicals, particularly in the last century, some evangelicals are not definitely in the young earth or old earth camp, claiming that the Bible is silent concerning the age of the earth. They argue that Genesis in particular is poetic literature, and it doesn't really intend on answering all of the scientific or maybe even pseudoscientific questions that are raised by evolutionists or creationists. 
This view is especially popular among many evangelical Bible scholars who would advocate for a literary framework theory for interpreting Genesis 1 and 2. So basically, instead of interpreting Genesis 1 and 2 literally, um, they would interpret it literarily as poetry, right? And that this poetry, just so you guys know, um, this poetry, like the, this interpretation of Genesis 1 and 2 is not at all meant to cast doubt upon the truthfulness of Scripture. It in no way is casting doubt on the truthfulness of Scripture, but it is affirming the true theological statements that the biblical authors are making to highlight God as the creator. And so whenever Moses is writing down, you know, the six days of creation and then on the seventh day um, God rested, you see a pattern. If you look at the first day, God says, let there be light. And then you see on the fourth day, God creates the sun and the moon and the stars. So there, there's something that is happening there with that pattern, right? Um, and it's not meant to, again, cast doubt on the scriptures, but it's meant to affirm the theological positions that Moses is trying to assert, that God did create. God created the world, and he created it for his glory. Around, and this is a little bit of a side note, but around um, the, how do I say this, around Mesopotamia <laughs> in, in Moses' day, um, in the ancient world, it was really common for people to believe there's even like historical accounts where people say that the way that the world was created was an, one god had a battle with another god, killed that other god, and ripped the god's body in half, and then that's how all, everything in creation was made. And that's what they believed. And then we see Moses writing Genesis 1 and 2, and he makes it clear, no. God created everything from nothing. First off, there is one God. There is not multiple. And secondly, God didn't use parts and pieces from something else to create what we see around us, but he created it from nothing because he is all-powerful, and he is all-knowing, and he is all-wise, and he has a purpose for his creation. So, considering all that, what should we believe? Well, we should believe this, that the triune God, Yahweh, created all things through the means of his spoken word for his own glory, regardless of when creation occurred, God was involved in all the intimate details of creation. The Bible doesn't unambiguously answer every question about creation, but it seems difficult to reconcile theistic evolution with scripture. Again, we just don't see any middle ground there. And so let's take away some biblical principles that we can get from creation. Just so you guys know, these principles are borrowed very, very heavily from a scholar named Andrew Davis. Um, I don't know what work this is from because, again, these are Nathan's notes, not mine. <laughs> but number one, everything we know about creation comes by revelation of God, both in creation around us and in the scriptures. So from the very beginning, God created a universe that reveals his existence right, and true nature so that we can know him and worship him. Number two, everything in creation belongs to Jesus. This is very, very clear all throughout the New Testament. Everything was created through him and for him. Everything belongs to him. He is on the throne and we are not. And then number three, though the earth is not the center of the physical universe, 
At one point in time, we used to believe in what's called geocentrism. That is, that the world, the planet Earth, is the center of everything. And we no longer believe that because science has progressed. There was a man named Galileo Galilei, and he found out that, well, the Earth actually revolves around the sun, and that changed the way that we view the entire universe. Now we are in a heliocentric um, world where everything revolves around the sun, not around the earth. But though the earth is not the center of the physical universe, it is still the center of God's plan for creation. So let's make that very clear. Even though we have switched maybe <laughs> views from thinking that the earth was the center of the universe, we still know that it is at the very center, at the very core of God's plan for creation. God created human beings as the height, the peak, the pinnacle of his creation. And he has made us to worship him. And so he is intimately involved, yes, in his entire universe, but particularly in the planet Earth. Does that make sense? Okay, awesome. So now let's look at the Trinity in creation. This is also borrowed very, very heavily from a scholar named Michael Bird. Once again, can't give you the resource because I actually don't know what the resource is. But this is the role of the Father. He is the constitute of grounds for all that exists in creation. The Father is directly active in creation with reference to his divine will being the grounds for creation. The Father is the author of creation with reference to its goal to glorify himself. The Father generates the Son whom he loves and thereby eternally shares his deity with the Son. So also the Father freely makes the world and shares his existence with it, the role of the Son. Whereas the Father is the grounds of creation, the Son is the principle of creation. The role of the Son is analogous to that of wisdom in Proverbs 8, i.e. the artisan at his right side. Um, as the Lagos, the Son is the organizing and unifying principle of the created order. And according to Colossians 1.16, the Son is the unitive principle and goal of the created world. The incarnate Son exemplifies the proper relationship of humanity to God by obeying his Father, the role of the Holy Spirit. Whereas the Father is the grounds of creation and the Son is the principle of creation, the Spirit is the divine power active in creation. The Spirit is the creative power of God to will, act, and affect creation. The Spirit is the power that binds together Father and Son, God and creation, together. So, how then do we live? If we try to apply what we are getting from Scripture, how does it change the way in which we live in God's creation? Well, the doctrine of creation is foundational to a Christian worldview, and as such, it informs every aspect of our lives. The Christian worldview is often summarized as the grand biblical narrative of creation, fall, redemption, consummation. God created everything for his own glory, and his creation is inherently good. Everything else in Scripture teases out this foundational truth. We need the doctrine of creation in our churches and in our families. If we get this first fact of Scripture wrong, 
we open the door for misinterpreting much of the rest of Scripture, misunderstanding how the world works, and misunderstanding God's purpose for his creation. Number two, a healthy understanding of creation informs how we worship and how we make disciples. God's general revelation through the created order testifies to God and his glory. Understanding creation on the basis of special revelation only magnifies God's glory. Creation is also foundational to the gospel message we share with unbelievers and consistently reinforces or consistently reinforced among maturing Christians in sanctification. God created everything, including humans, and all of creation is accountable to him, including humans. All of life is lived corum deo. Oh, I didn't write it on the board. My bad. <laughs> corum deo, which is before the face of God. Number three, defending the doctrine of creation is especially important in our present age. Two of the foundational myths in our culture are the ideas that either the universe is eternal, which is really held by a lot of postmodern views, or that it's the result of random occurrences of natural selection. That's going back to the evolutionary theory kind of view, right? Regardless of our convictions on the days of creation or the age of the earth, whether it's young earth or old earth, all Orthodox Christians agree that the Bible directly contradicts these cultural myths. We must continue to contend for a Christian understanding of creation. And then finally, as Christians, one of the ways that we engage our culture is by caring for God's creation. Again, God created all things and declared his creation to be good. This doesn't mean becoming postmodern earth worshipers who love trees and spotted owls and all of these things more than unborn humans, but it does mean that good stewards of God's resources personally, um, personally and advocating biblical stewardship of God's creation publicly. Christians often care more about apologetics for their views of how and when God created than for creation care. But we can't concede the latter to unbelievers who worship the creation rather than a creator. We need to be at the forefront of creation care, offering biblical rationales and wise strategies. So let me give you guys recommended resources real quick, and then we'll open it up for, for the onslaught. Hit me with your best shot, <laughs> and which I will probably pivot to Nathan, just so y'all know. Um, all right, so some recommended resources. We got Andy Davis. Creation, um, the gospel as center, renewing our faith, and reforming our ministry practices. So this is a helpful short introduction to the doctrine of the creation, and it's by a Southern Baptist pastor slash theologian. David Wilkinson, The Message of Creation, Encountering the Lord of the Universe. This is a collection of theological expositions of key biblical passages that reflect on the doctrine of creation. And it's especially helpful for Bible teachers, so maybe it's a little bit of a step up from that introductory one. And then we've got Albert Walters, uh, Creation Regained, Biblical Basics of a Reformational Worldview. So this is a classic introduction to the Christian worldview that emphasizes God's plan for his cosmos from creation to consummation. 
Then we've got Wayne Grudem, biblical case against theistic evolution. Um, I have no insert Nathan's opinion on this book, but he recommended it, so yeah. And then we've got Kenneth Keithley and Mark Rooker, 40 Questions About Creation and Evolution. Once again, highly recommended by him. So that was topic number one, and we're at a pretty good pace. So I know that was a lot. That was kind of like drinking from the fire hydrant. So what questions do y'all have? Yes, sir. Uh, okay, go back to number four in the role of the father. Yes. What does it mean the father generates the son as he loves? That mm. makes it sound like the son is not eternal. Just what may just be the way it's worded, but yes. So if there was anything that I would change in that, it would be the father eternally generates the son. So what we're saying, whenever we're talking about the father generating the son, we say that the son is the only begotten son of God. And so we're not saying that he used to not be and then he became, right? He did not become the son. He's eternally always been the son. But that word generates is trying to make a distinction between just the role of the father and the son. Does that make sense? Okay. Also, questions about the Trinity are really, really hard. <laughs> so, yeah. Kind of hard to wrap my brain around. Um, so I'll defer also to Nathan on that one. Yes? I, I read that in, in the resource about the Trinity, that the whether it's Arabic or Hebrew or whatever word that we translate as begotten can also be translated generally. So it's, it's, it's just a different way of saying what we've always said before the begotten said. So if you want to say the Father time. begets the Son, you could do that as well. Or the Father eternally generates the Son. Okay, any other sense? Sorry, I don't no, you're good. I a lot of time on this. But in the sense of creation, yes, sir. We, when I think of God begetting the Son, we think of the birth of Jesus, New Testament starts, and that, that's just the way I think about it. So when I Got think it. of creation, I think of the eternal existing Son present in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So that's just, I'm just trying to wrap my head around the Word. That's good. Yeah. Right. This is the deep mystery of the Trinity. 
think the distinction they're trying to make with that word, I think, and maybe we can speak to that next week too, but I think it's in this making sure that we realize he's someone who's created. He's not a created being, but emanating of the same essence and the same being as the Father. One being, two persons, but from the Father. So when I hear the word generate, first thing that came to my mind was, okay, then Jesus is dependent upon the Father to exist. Jeremy, you're doing great. speaks about the Trinity, but we cannot say more than that. So we could make some speculations, but I think Jeremy would be uncomfortable and I would be uncomfortable with like wanting to take it too far, right? Yeah. And so we can only speak the way that Scripture speaks, even if we have to say it's mystery. Mystery, just so you guys know, is not a cop-out answer. It is not willing, us not willing to go beyond what Scripture has to say about the Trinity. Okay. So, any other questions about uh, creation before we move on? Okay, so we'll go ahead and move on. And this one is actually on my notes, so I can't defer to Nathan and say that, you know, it's his fault for writing something a certain way. But, um, be merciful to me. So, <laughs> okay, so here we go. What is the big idea of providence? Well, John Piper, one of my favorite authors, he defines providence as God's purposeful sovereignty. So the providence is the theological term that describes God's relationship with his creation. In his providence, God is both able to know what is coming. Again, if you guys remember last week, we were talking about the attributes of God. So he is able to know what's coming. That's because he's an omniscient. He knows everything, right? And he is able to carry out his purposes because he is omnipotent. He is all-powerful. Does that make sense? So regarding this topic, we oftentimes use words like governing or sovereignty or these kind of words to describe what we mean by God's ruling in his creation. But the term providence, the reason why we use that term specifically is because it carries with it the idea of sovereignty that, that God's good purposes for his creation will be accomplished. So what we're saying, the reason why we talk of God's providence instead of using the word sovereignty is 
You know, if we think about it wrongly, sovereignty could carry with it the idea of a distant ruler who is going to keep us at arm's length, right? But providence, somebody who is providing for us, like a good father who cares for his children, that's who God is. And so that's what we're talking about whenever we talk about God's providence. So whereas the doctrine of creation describes the act of God creating, the doctrine of providence describes what God does with his creation. Does that make sense? Okay, awesome. So, uh, like, back up yes, sir. A and tell me again what the, John Piper's definition of providence was. He calls providence God's purposeful sovereignty. So, sovereignty that carries with it a purpose in mind. And that's like a really simple definition. So, I like it a lot. So, what do the scriptures say? Well, scripture is clear that God not only created everything but that he also actively works in creation, sustaining and preserving its existence and properties. Hebrews 1.3, he is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Job 34.14-15, if he should set his heart to it and gather to himself his spirit and his breath, all flesh would perish together. And man would return to dust. Or Acts 17, 28, in him we live and move and have our being. God's the one who sustains us, right? Further, God directs his creation in accordance with his purposes. As his creatures are working, so it can also be said that God himself is working through them. So consider Ephesians 1:11. In him we have an, an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Psalm 104.14, you cause the grass to grow. You, God, cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate. Proverbs 16.33, the, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. So God is providential over even the most minute details of the lives of his creatures. Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart is like a stream of water in the hand of the Lord, and he turns it wherever he will. And then Philippians 2.12-13, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. However, let's be clear, Scripture never speaks... I will say this again. Scripture never speaks in a way that makes God responsible for sin or wrongdoing. So we can never, at any point in time, say that it's God's fault for my sin or God's fault for anyone else's sin or any of the brokenness that we see in the world. We cannot make him responsible for sin and wrongdoing because Scripture never does that. Genesis 50, 20, As for you, you meant evil against me. Joseph, talking to his brothers, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. And then James 1.13, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. God is not responsible for evil. Lastly, God governs over his creation, seeing to it that his good plan for his creatures is brought about. Scripture is clear concerning the end result of this plan, that God will be worshipped 
around his throne for the rest of eternity. Psalm 103.19, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens. His kingdom rules over all. Romans 8.28, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And then Philippians 2, 10, 11. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And then a personal favorite of mine, Revelation 7, 9 and 10. After this, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every tribe Every nation from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. This is his purpose with his creation. If there was an overarching plan, this is the last five minutes of the movie. You know what I'm saying? This is the climax of the movie, right? And so what has the church said? Well, the early church distinguished between primary and secondary causes. So God is the primary cause of everything, capital C, cause, and his creatures are the secondary causes of things, where God is the ultimate cause and creatures can still cause real change in the world. So Augustine himself linked God's control of all things with God's knowledge, in other words, his omniscience. Because he knows everything, that means he also controls all things, right? And so during the Reformation, the Reformers, particularly John Calvin, upheld that God's providence was personal, good, and wise. They affirmed that God is not ultimately the author of evil because man is responsible. Sin was a secondary cause, not a primary one. Does that make sense? So God created all things good, and it was man who brought about sin or evil. We think of evil not... So just so you guys know, theologically, whenever we think of evil, evil is not a thing. Evil is an absence of something, right? So God created all things good. He is the one filling and he is the one sustaining. And so we're, there is an absence of good. That's what evil is, right? So God did not cause Sin. God did not cause evil, but it was man, these secondary causes, man removing goodness from himself, from the created world, causing evil. Does that make sense? Yeah? I mean, it's kind of, it's difficult to wrap our minds around, but think of it as the glass half empty <laughs> instead of the glass half full, if that makes sense. Well, maybe that was a more confusing illustration, so just ignore that. <laughs> so... Jacob Arminius would later go on to separate God's knowledge from his will, arguing that God responds to human choices and that his purposes are a result of simple foreknowledge. In this view, what God ordains is much more general, but his providence does not touch many of the details of human history. So this began the great Calvinism and Arminianism debate that's become so popular in our day. And we are all in agreement about it, and we're not going to argue about it, and we're going to live in peace. Kumbaya. That's great. Right? Well, maybe not. There's room for debate. So what should we believe? Well, now I'm going to get you guys all on my side. 
No, I'm just kidding. So what should we believe? We should believe that the triune God, Yahweh, created all things through the means of his spoken word for his own glory. If that sounds familiar, it's because that's literally how we started out this section in the last set of notes. But it's important. <laughs> I mean, so we repeat it again, right? So scripture leaves no room for a false understanding of God's rule and reign that allows for a pantheistic or deistic worldview. Pantheistic, that there is no distinction between God and his creation, or deistic, that God set creation into motion and now he is either unable or unwilling to act in human history. Scripture leaves no room for these things. So he alone has ultimate say over what happens with his creation. Human decisions really do matter, and human beings have the ability to make real choices, but never do any of these decisions thwart the purposes of God. Does that make sense? Okay, good. I saw like one person nod, so I'm, this is good. All right, so concerning how exactly he accomplishes those purposes involves much, say it with me, mystery. <laughs> but the following are two valid interpretations. So listen to what I'm saying. Regardless of whatever my stance as the speaker tonight is saying, these are two valid interpretations of Scripture that the church has wrestled over throughout church history. Option number one, general providence. God gives humanity the power of contrary choice, but he is still able to accomplish his ultimate purposes for creation because of his divine foreknowledge. Because he can see on into the future and because he knows what's going to happen in the end, then he is orchestrating these things to work out the way that they're supposed to, but he gives humanity the option to choose contrary to, to his leading and guidance, if that makes sense. And then specific providence, that God is absolutely sovereign over every single iota of all events, working through them to accomplish his purposes for creation. So based upon these two options that I've presented before you, how should we then live? Well, first off, we should pray. We should pray for an understanding of this doctrine. Because the doctrine of God's providence is really, really hard to wrap our minds around. The same way that the Trinity is really hard to wrap our minds around, and we pray for understanding about that, we pray for understanding about this. Second, we should not make this a debate concerning how exactly God is providential in our world a primary issue. So what I'm saying is there is room for us to argue, there is room for us to debate, but this is not like... Concerning how exactly God is providential is not a primary issue. And it's something that should not split us apart or make us want to disfellowship with somebody else or tear apart a church or, God forbid, somebody leave the faith because of it. You know what I'm saying? Like that, That's not what this debate should cause. Yes, there is room for interpretation. There is room for debate. And hear me rightly, there is a difference between debating how God is providential versus denying God is providential. If somebody denies that God is not in control, like if somebody says God is not in control over his creation, then that is a rejection of what scripture is clearly laid out. But if people argue over what exactly that looks like, then we are free to make those arguments and to have those opinions without it tearing us apart. Does that make sense? Okay. 
So next, we should remember, speaking of, that God is in control and that he is accomplishing his good purposes in our world, even in the midst of suffering. This is such a key point. The doctrine of God's providence should not lead us to just get really egg-headed over things and to become stale, bitter Christians. Instead, it should be something that invites us to worship God more because we know that God is in control. And even if there is suffering or cancer diagnosis or death or whatever ailment that you can think of or war or violence or trauma, man, God is in control and he is accomplishing his good purposes in our world, even in the midst of our suffering. And sometimes it's even through our suffering that he's accomplishing these good purposes. So we can trust him in that, and it should lead us to worship. So we should also submit our plans to God's plans. We should submit our plans to God's plans for our lives. God is in control, God is sovereign, and God is accomplishing things for his good purposes. And man, we want to jump on that, you know? The train that he's conducting, I want to ride on that train. You know what I'm saying? So we submit our plans for our lives to his plans because his plans are better than our plans. His plans are better than what we think our plans are. So let's submit our plans to his plans in our lives. Shout out to Stephen Crittenden, Disciple Cycle Lesson 7, something like that. Anyway, all right, and then the last thing, we should be committed to working together for God's ultimate plan. What is his ultimate plan? All tribes, tongues, and nations worshiping around the throne. God's providence, that's what it's leading to. That is the goal of God's plan. That's the goal of God's providence. And so we should work together. Again, we want to be on that same train. And so if God's saying, I am leading you to the nations, then that means we go there, right? So... Let us work together to accomplish God's good plan, God's ultimate plan, to see people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation around the throne worshiping him for the rest of eternity. So, recommended resources. Um, these are all really good, but the problem is that I can't necessarily rank them, I guess, on level of, like, introductory or whatever. But... J.I. Packer, this, okay, so everybody, if you don't have a copy of J.I. Packer's Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God, just go ahead and buy it, because it's like, it's real good. Or get it from Jeremy in the library, I reckon. But it is incredible, because it takes this doctrine issue that can be like a really heady thing, you know, and can be really theological and ethereal, and kind of makes your brain hurt a little bit, but it takes that and it makes it really practical, right? How does this doctrine of God's providence affect me trying to share the gospel with my neighbor who lives across the street, right? And so I would highly, if there's any resource on this list that I would recommend, it'd be that one. Obviously, I recommend them all, but that one especially. A.W. Pink's The Sovereignty of God. This one's a classic. It's really, really old, and it's really good. Um, John Piper's Providence. So this thing is like John Piper, if you're a fan of John Piper's writing, or maybe you hate John Piper's writing, it is his magnum opus, because this thing is like this big or something like that, and it is really, really great. 
And I'm not saying that just because I like to read big books. But what I am saying is that whether you like John Piper or whether you don't like John Piper, this book is such a good read. So seriously, if you want to dive really deeply into the doctrine of providence, he's got you covered. And then John Feinberg, no one like him, the doctrine of God, we've recommended that over the past couple of weeks. But it just, especially the last section in that book, just touches so well on the doctrine of God's providence. There are several chapters he has on it. And if you buy that one book, then it's going to cover you on everything that we've talked about so far in the doctrine of God. So does that make sense? All right, now I'm in the hot seat, not Nathan, because it's not his notes, it's mine. So what questions do we have? All right. Does that mean I did a good job? <laughs> All right, going once. Going twice. All right, cool. Well, if you have any questions, I'll be up here at the front. Or I, what I'll probably do is I'll say, hey, that's a great question. Ask Jeremy um, who's in the back. But we'll go ahead and pray. We'll wrap up, and you guys get out a little bit early. I did not think that was going to happen because it's two sets of notes. So anyway, let's pray. Lord, we are so thankful that you have created everything, that you are our creator, and that you are our sustainer, and that you are providing every single thing that we need. So God, we ask that as we reflect on your creation, that we would be good stewards of your creation. We ask that as we reflect on your providence, that we would realize that every single thing that we have comes from your hand. Because you are good, and you love us, and you care about us. So Lord, if there is anything that we could take away from tonight, help us to live our lives according to your plan. Help us to be people who see your creation and who see your people who you created in your image as people who are eternal beings, people who will spend an eternity somewhere. And Lord, that it is only by your word and the verbal proclamation of your gospel that anyone's eternity will be changed. So God, I pray that we would apply your word rightly that we would submit our plans, even in the daily busyness of life, to your plans, and that we would accept your sovereign rule, and that we would experience the joy of being able to share your good news, that you are the one who rules and reigns with someone else, and that that can fill them with joy, even in the midst of their suffering. Help us to be about this good work until the ends of the earth are reached with your gospel. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.